It's, it's easy when we treat uh, our desires as axiomatic to just forget that those choices are not free and are not like, springing forth from the head of Zeus fully formed. going down everybody welcome to owls at dawn we are just two dudes from southern california who study philosophy politics and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity i am austin <laughs> and i am troy <laughs> <laughs> i just i'm going i'm going madonna route man it's I, i'm whatever just austin i don't know you know i mean maybe you can run it but i think i have the more unique name so I mean, when I think of Troy, I think of the film Troy, and I think of the Trojans, and so there's yours. I think you're you're just as a signifier. It just uh, illuminates far more interesting, like rapturous ideas than Austin. Austin, the only thing I think of, um, you could think of linguistic philosophy, which I don't. I tend to think of <laughs> I tend to think of the city of Austin, which I've never been to, so I don't really have anything that I can gravitate towards. So there's just not much meat there in my name, you know. Yes. So I'm wondering, in, in a in a war between the city states of Austin, Texas, and Troy, who would who would have won? Oh come on, that's not even fair, man. Troy, I, I saw Brad Pitt with his beautiful flowing locks. He would take it. Well, I mean, he wasn't a Trojan, though. What was he? <laughs> oh yeah, he was Achilles. Never mind. Well, even still, um, Eric, Eric Banna, yeah. Eric, Eric Banna's a babe. Eric, Eric Banna with a sword or a bunch of people in Austin with uh, automatic rifles? Like who wins? Well, there's also Orlando Bloom. Wasn't he, you know? Um, oh, so, as Paris? Yeah. As Paris, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, you got Helen on your side whose beauty will recruit all of the other uh, thirsty men to come over and fight for her honor. So, you know, I think you got it. I think you, your your city state takes it. It would be an interesting battle for sure. The um, the walls around Troy would probably be more difficult to lay siege to than whatever Austin has going on. Freeways, <laughs> and country music, and good good film festivals. Listen, <laughs> just lay, lay siege to the film festivals. That's how you win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, Jesus. Um, well, cool. Well, so this week we are going to be talking about an article. Can you talk a little bit about the article? Do a little intro on it? Yeah. So the article is by um, Amia Srinivasan. I um, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. She's a philosopher at Oxford. Um, I think I first heard her several years ago on probably a podcast, if anything. She's written a lot on kind of sexual politics and issues surrounding uh, that stuff. And she's great. She's one of my favorite um, sort of contemporary philosophers. And she wrote this uh, piece for the Linden Review of Books called Does Anyone Have the Right to Sex, which is kind of, I think, an encapsulation of a book she wrote, with, I think basically the same title, um, on uh, specifically um, sort of initiated based upon the sort of wave of uh, incel-related killings back in the mid, uh, kind of mid to late 2010s. Um, but certainly applicable today. And I wanted to read this with you for a while, and I'm glad that we're finally going to get to do it. 
Cool. Yeah, so let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about <laughs> you and me. Let's talk about... Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so we'll get to that in the main segment. Uh, but before that, um, any housekeeping stuff that we got to do? Like, obviously, if people want to support us, they can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Um, we'll probably put up a call for patron-chosen topics here in the you know coming week or two so we can get that rolling. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, other than that, just hit us up on Twitter if you want. Uh, you can email us, podcast at gmail.com. Um, I'm just recovering. I'm still in the, the back end of COVID right now. So if I cough throughout this episode, I apologize. I'm going to do my best to not do it, but still got some It's symptoms. only when I make <laughs> completely dubitable claims that you cough. So they're, they're yeah, targeted. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, all right, let's get into this madness. All right, before we do that, though, before we talk about some sex, we got to do the part of the podcast that's everyone's favorite part, the shitty minute. This is the segment of the show where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears lately. So, Austin, I mean, I think COVID obviously is your shittiest <laughs> lately, but do you have a more conceptual one at hand or what's going on with you? Yeah, I will say this. I mean, COVID sucks. Like, this is the first time I had it and um, or at least knowingly, the first time I tested positive for it and the first time that I was aware that I was infected. Like, I've been sick, I guess, but not not like sick, sick over the last couple of years. And, um, it, it pretty floor, it floored me pretty much, man. Um, I didn't have like breathing issues. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm triple vaxxed. So, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that that had um, some sort of protective, protective, um, like fortification for me. But, um, yeah, I definitely, I definitely was floored. I slept a lot, got the body aches, didn't really get a fever. I was a little fevery, maybe one or two nights, but, um, yeah, I think not bad. And even that sucked. You know, even what I, what I had sucked. And, um, I'm the kind of person that when I get sick to like, I'll get really sick and then I will just have like lingering symptoms for a couple months, you know, oh, like yeah. a fucking cough. The last time I was sick, which I think may have been COVID was in like March, the end of March of 2020. Um, I just never tested positive and I was told not to go to the hospital at the time. And that was obviously before rat tests. And they wanted me to just monitor my symptoms because they didn't want me to come to the hospital because I had just gotten done with my lung surgery a couple months prior. And, and so, um, they didn't want me to possibly come and then get infected. And then if I had it, they didn't want me to come and then infect other people. So like they were like confused as oh, to even what to do. What's up? I forgot about your lung surgery. Yeah, dude. Yeah. So like, what has that been it was like? So that was, that was like, that was in March of 2020 and my lung surgery was in September of 2019. So it was only like five months prior and, um, or six months prior, five or six months prior. And, um, and so, yeah, so they were like kind of, you know, I, cause I called my surgeon and I called the wing where I, where I had my stuff and they were like, Hey, you know, just stay at home, monitor your symptoms. If it gets to the point where you can't breathe or you start to have breathing troubles, then obviously come in. But, and it never got that bad, but I remember through like fucking May, I was still like drinking the equivalent of airborne here in Australia every day and cough drops. And, you know, I, I was still coughing and sniffly and all that stuff. So it was pretty nasty. So anyway, that wasn't my shitty minute, but uh, yeah, that sucks. That still sucks. We can make that a shitty minute. I, I, I'm adaptable. Um, you can have shitty that be minutes. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, well I guess what I was going to say is um, like, obviously we're recording this just a couple days after the Roe v. Wade decision, um, got handed down. And, um, I don't want to talk about that per se, cause there's so much stuff that's going on out there that, um, that, 
that can probably be said better than anything that I can contribute at this moment, just because I don't really know quite what to say, um, like in any substantive sense, right? But I will say this, I have felt this strange sense, and I know we've, we've talked a lot about, like maybe we've even bemoaned a little bit what social media does, how it affects thought, knowledge, pursuits of truth, right? <clears throat> and I've been thinking a lot about um, like the constraints of, of the character limits and um, and how how there's this this tendency towards almost compelling people to to make hot takes, right? Or to make like a like a hypocrisy critique or that outward facing like monologue that it's like it's 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 almost as though it was directed to the audience, but it's not really directed to like a specific audience. It's like it's directed to like the general audience, you know, like that outward facing kind of like monologue rather than mm. dialogical. <clears throat> and maybe some of the problems, limitations with that. And I've just I've just felt like, especially over the last I want to say six months, year, and it's it's almost getting like more and more compressed. The the sense that so much of discourse, the capital D, is just really just frantic and and um, frenetic. And have you heard that? I I think Darius on our on our podcast talked about you know like the idea of like the perpetual motion machine. And I love this phrase of like being compelled into velocity. Oh no, it was being embarrassed into velocity. Right. <clears throat> and um, hmm. that 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 there's like a speed or a rate at which the takes are supposed to flow or or by which they're supposed to issue. And there's like this formal restraint. And I don't know if this is like a sort of like the medium is the message kind of shitty minute, but there's just something that I've really been sensitive to lately that um, that makes me feel that the there's too much in the cultural discourse and you see so much of it kind of resulting in infighting, right? <clears throat> and so you get so many people on the left and in the posture of the tweet is something like, like, I don't know who needs to hear this, but if you're a leftist and you say X, Y, and Z, then blah, 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 you know? And, and then, and then, it isn't even like split. Like I think I think a lot of people think that like the quote unquote left in the West is split between like like identity politics versus class-based politics, which was one way of framing it. But it's a lot more um multinodal than that, you know? And I'm not sure that like the the fragmentation and fracturing and differentiation of this form of communication is ever going to be conducive to any sort of cohesive capacity for thought. And and maybe I'm wrong, right? And maybe I'm wrong. And maybe this is just like the kind of like difficulties of, of, uh, of democratic expression being displayed in a really radical form. But the problem is that democracy doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? Like democracy and the expression of a democratic voice only makes sense under the conditions by which such sentiments are able to be expressed. And if there's a sort of like technological form of communication that is always already responding to what other people have said, and it's using the packaging and the form of that which has come before them, 
then that means that there is like a sort of tendency towards like serialization, this this mimetic repetition of the same style and the same form. And <clears throat> I don't know, it's it's just really started to like grate on me even more. And it, it, to the point where it makes me feel impotent with responding a lot of times on Twitter because it doesn't feel authentic. I, I feel like I'm I'm like being compelled to speak in a certain way. And I don't, I don't mean that in terms of like ideas, like I want to express some fucking radical idea, but I can't, I don't mean it in that sense. I mean, even, even expressing an idea, it feels like it's coming from a place where it isn't like, like fully attesting to the, the actual anger or the actual frustration. And maybe it's just that. Maybe it's just that there's like a sense in which I'm not as adept at expressing myself or connecting the feeling, maybe the desire we might say to the linguistic structure um, at this point in time. But I've really felt that. I've really felt that. And, and I wonder if other people are feeling this too, but rather than withhold, they're still just kind of like playing the game because maybe they think they can like tweet through it, right? And, um, and for me, I, I don't feel like I can tweet through it. I feel like I can talk through it like this, like me with you, right. Or talking with a loved one or talking with like a colleague or talking with another friend that I can have these kinds of su substantial discussions with. I can talk through it. And I've always said that, like, I talk to think, right. And I think that's very true. I'm very much like a, an experimental thinker in the sense that I, I don't really have like solid, I don't have many solid, like preformed absolute ideals that I'm like, those are what I believe and I am going to commit myself to them. I'm much more like a, I'm going to talk through these experimental ideas and experimental concepts and, um, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm very comfortable with that dialogue in any setting. Right. Um, but, but I just feel like, uh, the online sphere and, and I, I'm saying Twitter because I'm more active on Twitter. Like I don't really give a shit. I'm not really on Insta or I don't really do the Reddit thing. Um, you know, I, I tried a little bit. It just, it, it just isn't my world. It's too much coming at me all the time. And I don't really think it's, it's conducive for my ability to settle my own thoughts. So I don't know. Um, but I've just been feeling that a lot lately. And, uh, and I, I just wonder in the long term what it does for not what we're thinking, but how we're thinking, you know, and I, I guess this is kind of like a variation of other themes that we've discussed previously, but I'm just more now trying to put to put meat on on skeletons that I've previously felt in. Yeah. Yeah. And I almost feel like it's it's you know how they talk about like choice paralysis, right? <clears throat> and then the last episode we talked about like that, um, the pressure in academia to be constantly like hedging all the time. I, I feel like there's something in those those phenomena that are also maybe impinging on this sense that I'm trying to get at. But yeah, it's been fucking like really potent lately. And um, so what I've kind of done on Twitter is especially over the last six months is I haven't done like many threads or much like substantive, like political, economic or political, philosophical stuff. Every once in a while, I'm like, oh, I'm getting, I've got an idea to share. But I've been tweeting a lot about movies or like just kind of like – um. Uh, I've been retweeting, you know, people who I think are saying something that's good. So trying to like um, bolster those interesting, interesting things that people have to say substantial, substantially. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's weird. And 
I, I know some people will take the route of like, like um, critique through creation, right? And I've thought a lot about this over the years, right? Rather than like specifically engage in the intellectual activity of rhetorical polemics, what you do is you create beauty and you create art. And and I worry sometimes, like I, th I find that very appealing, but I worry if that isn't like just some sort of like aristocratic, like aesthetic, privileged position, you know? Like a quietism or something? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I don't know if that's the route, even though it does appeal a little bit to certain aspects of my soul. Um, but um, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting really tired of the polemic. And I just wonder at what point is polemic and rhetoric, and maybe this is, I mean, this goes back to the very beginnings of Western philosophy, right? Like at what point is it like not actually achieving the, the, the thing that this soul is longing for in the expression, right? That almost like maybe there's a disconnect and, um, yeah, I just, I just, I'm getting a little tired of the polemic as being like the wrapping of social discourse. So, yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot on these same lines too. And I'm glad you brought up the the analogy with sort of academic discourse, because I think that's really apt, is like this whole thing kind of gives, like betrays the weakness of this conception of public discourse as being in this marketplace of ideas thing that we talk about a lot, right? Yeah. Where it's like, and Twitter's the ultimate version of this, where you just like, you just yell into a megaphone your, your take, and then everybody responds either by yelling back or applauding or whatever, you know, the analogy is. Um, and that's just obviously incredibly alienating and not at all how anything productive gets done. Um, right. So, yeah. And that's true in like academics too. Right. I mean, there's some sense in which there's a, a marketplace of ideas in the sense of like you publish a, uh, a paper and then somebody that you've never heard of responds to it in the next edition of the journal. And then you respond back and like that happens. Right. But if you ask any academic, I, I could almost guarantee you that unless they're just the most like, like alien person that exists, they would tell you that the most productive discussions they have are in the seminar room or are getting drinks after, after some event. Like that's when the work gets done. The really good work, right? Because you're right. with people that you like, you care about and you have a relationship with and you're one-to-one -one and you're actually talking about things you care about without everybody watching you or whatever. Right. Um, not that it's secretive or anything, but that just there's, there's an intimacy there. That's not a marketplace. Um, that's where the good stuff actually happens. And there's some sense in which it kind of feels like, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is too cynical and, and is giving, um, too much credit to like the Bowers, the B or whatever, but there's a sense in which they clearly think that it's just going to blow over and people will just get used to it. And there's maybe a sense in which the sort of social media reaction, um, like lends credence to that. Think, kind, of, kind of thinking like there's only so much anger that we all have right and we're going to deplete it all on twitter <laughs> hmm. rather than whatever is necessary to sustain that anger over a long time in developing a social movement and the stuff that's actually going to work because politicians won't do shit unless you like threaten them not necessarily physically but i mean like threaten them in the political sense right like force them to do uh, things through social movements like the fact that we're we're not going to have a general strike tomorrow is pretty disappointing 
right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That would by, be by far the most efficacious thing that could happen. Um, yeah. But I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, I really hope that that <clears throat> changes. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't want to like stake my claim on the like social media depletes all of our our productive productive fluids or whatever, like Dr. Strangelove style. Um, but it does feel a bit like we're all just yelling into the wind and that's appropriate. Like I think people are, are right to be angry and to vent. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't want to like tone police people for doing that. Um, but also there's a sense in which it, it really feels kind of empty when you see the machinations of power actually being used really heavy handedly, right. By an undemocratic unaccountable force. That's yeah. when you see like, it's, it's kind of similar to like, I was too young to really get it at the time, but I, I kind of I had a nascent feeling of it in 2003 when the Iraq war started. And then there was the biggest protests in the history of the world. And Bush just came out and said, this is a great example of the kind of thing that we're fighting for in Iraq, the right to do this. And it's like, oh my God, <laughs> like the naked cynicism of, of that use of power to where the biggest protests in history are just co-opted as another example of, of American imperialist superiority. And they're not threatened at all by this. Like they're mm. kind of laughing. <laughs> yeah. um, that was pretty dispiriting at the time. And I don't know, it kind of feels in a similar way right now, although we're right in the middle of it. So who's to say what's going to happen? Um, and, and, and I know that it's also important for people to express so that they're not trapped in like a state of impotence. But I, I, I just, I think a lot of people think that there's something like inherently good about just expressing where you are. <clears throat> and I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case. Right. And this kind of actually is going to tie into our, our main segment today, you know, about like understanding the conditions of, uh, or understanding the kind of material and structural conditions as, you know, those within the kind of like materialist legacy like to speak of, um, understanding those things and how they impinge upon the construction of our forms of communication, our forms of desire, our forms of rationality, etc. in the first instance. And, and I don't think we can just simply valorize them, but I wonder if there's also a sense in which there's been like a, a, a psychologization of communication that kind of tries to, to valorize these forms of expression as being inherently good in themselves and that encourages them as some form of like therapeutic release. And um, I worry that that's not only serving the, the flow of the speed of a certain type of temporality. And because I've been doing so much thinking about time over the last handful of years, there's also something here in this. And it's, it's the time of the clock or the time of <clears throat> the calendar or the time of what we can call extensional quantification, that homogenous time that can be divided and recomposed and quantified um, and then that can be enclosed and privatized and datafied and um, that can enrich the already enriched, whether that's socially or whether that's materially or whether that's in money terms or whether that's in property terms or whether that's just in cultural power terms. Um, 
And so I feel like maybe the, the lines of battle can be drawn along that, like rather than engaging at that level of extension and trying to take more time back or trying to take more words back or trying to take more space back within the confines of the extensionally quantified, there isn't something deeper. But then here's the worry for that. That sounds great, but I, then that can veer dangerously close to the sort of like tendencies that you get in like the Heideggerian leanings towards like the fetishization of, you know, <laughs> blood and soil. Sorry, that's not funny. <laughs> but <laughs> that's not funny, but it kind of is. Um, but but it can it can lean towards a sort of like fetishization of like um like the pursuits of the essence or the pursuits of the authentic versus the inauthentic and 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 that can lead to its own set of traps. So it, I just find myself bound by these difficult places. Now of course like the Deleuzian and post-Deleuzian legacy is one that's been very influential to me. And I think that there are some strategies to drawing these lines of contestation that maybe won't fall into that. But but nevertheless, I think it's a very it's a, it's a very um, precarious precarious um, journey, and and yeah, and so sometimes I feel a little stuck, and I think I feel a little stuck right now. Yeah, it does feel at the very least like it's a transitional time, and um, even though our podcast is called Owls at Dawn, there's some truth to the idea that the owl Minerva flies only um, at dusk, right? Mm-mm. So. It's pretty difficult to do the Don thing. <laughs> we were we were ambitious yeah. in titling the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, cool. Um, well, I guess let's get into the main segment here and start talking about um this this pretty thought-provoking essay. So can you can you give us the uh, intro and why you wanted to talk about it? Yeah, so like I said in the beginning, um it's from the London Review of Books. It's called Does Anyone Have the Right to Sex by Amiya Srinivasan. And she's a philosopher at uh, Oxford currently. And the essay is, I think, a summation of the book of the same uh, title. Um, the sort of lead for the essay is about Elliot Roger, who, if people don't remember, was one of the original sort of incel uh, killers who in May of 2014... Um, basically killed a bunch of people, right? Mm. Uh, and then wrote, he had a, um, a sort of like giant manifesto, which I had never read. Um, I don't know if, if you remember that when it happened. Do you have any memory even of the story of Elliot Roger when it happened? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember the video that he filmed like in his car. Do you remember that? I remember the video that he filmed. In- I don't think I remember that. Yeah, he made like a video of himself talking while he was in his car. And I remember that because I remember his face extremely clearly. Um, And then I just remember, I remember the effect it had on certain uh, online communities that would, that would appeal to him, you know, Um, like Cernovason mentions a couple of times, but like, you know, that his, his legacy will never be forgotten and shit like that. And so he kind of, in a way, became a sort of figurehead for certain um, subgroups online. Yeah, he definitely did. And I think um, sort of Austin even points out that a number of the later incel and even non-incel, um, you know, uh, like mass shooting perpetrators have specifically named him as a sort of forebear. So uh, his his actions have clearly paved a road in a certain sense and, and created a sort of like mimetic line through some of these uh, different mass shootings, and even if even if not directly, indirectly, 
for the sense in yeah, which because he kind of like well because he brings together like his his own like sexual frustration with racial frustrations mm -hmm. and um so there's like gender politics and racial politics kind of all all kind of informing one another in his manifesto and in in his ideas and um i don't think it's a coincidence that they that they go together and that other people would be inspired and that i, I also don't think it's coincidental then that you get people who rightly speak of intersectionality as being important to address because these ideas uh, these concepts do inform each other and you see it in the actions of people who are inspired by like it wasn't just purely i'm sexually frustrated it was also like uh that there are like i'm targeting a certain type of ethnic group as well right um so these the the construction of identities is also extremely important i think to understand in its variations and uh and how that informs desire or how that informs like frustration or anger or whatever so yeah yeah there's a strong sense in which i think that the the through line between uh the elliot roger manifesto and some of the more recent um like mass shootings and stuff is and like we know a lot about like dylan klebold and like the columbine killings and stuff like that right uh, and so clearly th those were like the kind of original they weren't the original mass shootings or anything but they were um they were sort of the first of its kind in a certain way, right? And these all follow from that in a really important way. But there's probably some sense, and maybe this is me speaking like out of turn or whatever, but it seems like there's some sense in which Elliot Rogers' ability or his um, sort of uh, conceptualizing his own actions as punishing society for slights, as like he names um, abstract concepts like feminism, um, as the enemy or as a thing that, that he's getting revenge against. And so that's really the only way to make sense of why sometimes, um, why a mass shooting could be in some sense rational, not in the sense of like being good or in the sense of being done for a reason, as opposed to somebody who's just like completely insane. Right. Um, yeah. And so punishing, it's so incoherent about mass shootings is that it seems like you're punishing people who have nothing to do with whatever slight you feel deserves uh, revenge, right? Mm. Um, e even like the, the classic, like, you know, man kicks woman, woman kicks child, child kicks dog or whatever. Uh, at least there's like, you know, a, a, a proximity <laughs> that's involved there. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah. The mass shooting, it seems even more incoherent than that, given that it seems to be like random people in public. So certainly because it's public, there's a certain sense in which it's like punishing society for feeling like you're failed by society and and not just by individuals in society, although that certainly is part of it too, right? I mean, Roger uh, names, you know, certain experiences that he had as uh, provoking him towards towards what he did. But it's also like certain like social movements uh, and institutions and, you know, more amorphous stuff like that. That's the enemy. And that seems to be a, a not new thing, but it's at least somewhat novel. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting, right? So it's like a, a personal experience, like he got picked on and, and beat up by his dude peers um, because what, like he wasn't sexually active or he wasn't, I don't know, he didn't have like the physical attributes maybe that put him within the cool kids or he didn't have the charm and 
communicative abilities that he perceived that his peers had. And so maybe that was his interpretation of why he was bullied or for whatever reasons. And then, and then he then is also angry because he's not quote unquote getting sex or his unfuckability or, or whatever it is that Srinivasan um, discusses and, and how he interprets like why he was unfuckable. It's a, it's strange because it is like a, it's based on like a personal frustration, but then it turns into almost like a structural critique, right? Like he's in a way kind of saying society is not constructed in such a way that somebody like me would receive what he's deserving of, mm -hmm. right? And so therefore I'm going to punish society in the form of attacking the archetypes that society most values, which is um, <clears throat> which is kind of kind of interesting and, and, and illuminating to kind of see like how it is that um, like is it a post hoc rationality right where it's kind of like I feel slighted therefore I'm going to look for a place to land my my anger. Um, I don't know. It, it, that, that just kind of popped into my head, but. Hmm. Yeah. And then there's an important point. And this is sort of the, the sort of immediate sort of feminist critique of uh, these claims is, and there's a telling part from the manifesto where Roger says um, he kind of compares himself to a black kid um, who was apparently getting some white girls. And he says like, how could an inferior ugly black boy be able to get a white girl? Not me. I am beautiful and I am a half white uh, myself. I am descended from British aristocracy. He's descended from slaves. Mm. Um, and so there's that intersectionality point you were talking about earlier. And this is not just the like guy who's frustrated because he can't get laid. This is someone who has a, a sense of racial um, superiority. Yeah. He, deserves, he thinks he deserves not just to get laid. He thinks he deserves um like a really narrow form of his desires to be fulfilled and for others not to be fulfilled. Mm, it's much mm, more than just about his own sort of natural desire for recognition, like, like sexual recognition or whatever. It's, it's much more um, narrow and obviously ugly and terrible than that. And so the kind of two main criticisms um, that come in here are it obvious. It obviously was the case that him not being able to get laid had nothing to do with um, him, like not fitting certain archetypes or whatever or feminism or whatever, it's that he was creepy. <laughs> like, clearly this is someone yeah. who's really creepy and turns off women. Um, and it's uh, also just false, manifestly false, that non-masculine guys don't get laid. Like, like, nerds get laid all the time, right? Um, there's, like, deviant forms of masculinity that are accepted in certain social circles. Maybe not, like, in the most mainstream one, but even that's not even really that true anymore. So the sort of the claims about himself, he clearly not very like self-transparent was kind of the point, right? Is that um, his critique of, of like feminism being the reason why he can't get what he wants or thinks he deserves is just false, right? Um, hmm. It's really that he wants a sense of racial superiority over others to restrict them from getting what they're getting and to get it instead. And that's just an obviously like as inegalitarian uh, a view of how society should work as you could possibly have. Um, and therefore, it's not worth like recognizing as anything like a legitimate claim. Obviously, no one's going to think that someone who commits like a mass shooting is making legitimate claims. But 
if they run a giant manifesto and you might want to think about, well, what could cause somebody to do something like this, or at least make them think it's justified in any way. Um, that's sort of a way to, 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 to show the, the weaknesses and those sorts of justifications. But what's really interesting is that Srinivasan, while acknowledging that those two criticisms are obviously true in a really important way, thinks that this is not really a, the most helpful response to the sort of incel complaint. Uh, and doesn't really, or at the very least, it doesn't really get to the, um, the bottom level, like the, the, the ground or foundation of what's actually happening here um, in basically just dismissing the the justifications that Roger provides as just manifestly false, and he just has has the facts wrong or something, or isn't isn't aware um, that he was a creep or something like that, right? There's something much more uh, deeply missed about the way that desires are shaped ideologically um, that needs to be investigated, and that's what she's going to do in this paper. Yeah. It, one thing I didn't, she she mentions it, but she doesn't spend much time elaborating. And I don't think I saw too many other people elaborating it. But so he comes out of like a, a film industry family, right? And I wonder, I wonder if there's also a sense in which the, 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 the standards of beauty and like the promises of pleasure that accompany that world also didn't create a very distorted conception of this narrow, like a distorted and narrow conception of this, this form of desire that he expresses and that he feels like he's been cut off from. And I, I'm interested in this because I think that this is a, a larger societal tendency that I find to be highly problematic in, in how we understand sexuality as being um, and, you know, people have written about this a ton. You know, I just, I don't know, I stumbled across something the other day. I didn't read the article, but I was like, oh, shoot, that could be interesting. And so I got it open on a tab. But it was about, um, <clears throat> like, how movies have shaped uh, female expect expectations of the orgasm. Um, but it was uh, an article written by a woman for women, right? Like, how our forms of pleasure have been fed to us or how our expressions of pleasure have been sold to us and, and packaged in the form of like the movie orgasm, right? And um, I think as somebody who grew up in front of a TV and who has consumed a lot of visual media in the form of TV and film, you know, we've seen tons of sex scenes. And I think it does create a very sort of narrow conception of desire, of pleasure, um, and I wonder if there isn't something about the form of, of popular media that may have kind of impinged upon him in a particularly protracted sense because he kind of grew up from that. More as not, not as a justification, but as an indictment of the forms of desire that are packaged and sold to us as being right and good and um, as, as being um, something that everybody ought to have access to in, in those narrative limited scopes, you know, like for me growing yeah, up, I mean, it was like, if you're not Zach Morrison and you don't have a Kelly Kapowski, then you're not, then you're not living up to what it means to be a good white boy, um, with, a, a, a tall, um, slender frame, you know, like that was, that was literally, I, I kind of just thought that I was going to be a Zach Morris as a kid. You know, like I thought that was what it was. I thought that was what it was to be cool, you know, 
Um, I thought I thought you, did, you didn't really realize that Screech was the cool one. You just got to be okay <laughs> with being Screech, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I remember even talking with my friends about like who was the cool one. Was it Zach Morris or AC Slater? And the funny thing is. As my really close friend uh, and I, we used to talk about this. I was, I would look more like the Zach Morris and like the Mark Paul, Paul Gosler kind of figure, and he would look more like the AC Slater kind of guy. And I thought that like that like the guy that I looked like was the guy that should have gotten Kelly Kapowski, and he thought the guy that he looked like should have gotten Kelly Kapowski. <laughs> I remember having this conversation, you know, at like fourteen years old. Um, I mean, this is after I'm not watching Saved by the Bell at that point, but it was still like. It was, it was, we, we discussed like how, like, oh, I always wanted, you know, to find that sort of thing. And I remember that. And, and so there is something about how these images inform our conceptions, our narrow conceptions of, of how desire ought to function. Yeah. I mean, this is the central problem that Srinivasan is exploring, which I think is, it's so good to like use these contemporary events and then dig deep into them to see this fundamental problem at the heart of how individuals work in a society, which is that under liberalism, um, we kind of feel like we have to assume that desires are pre-political givens. Not, they're not part of the political contestation. Right? People just have desires. And the point about liberalism is how do you negotiate and adjudicate between those desires such that the, the maximal set of them are fulfilled, right? That's sort of the kind mm -hmm. of utilitarian way of, of approaching it, right? Um, and of course, the problem with that is that their desires don't work that way. <laughs> they are very much, uh, they're not givens. They're shaped um, by social and political systems of all kinds, including down to like the cultural ones like media. And we make choices about how those institutions and practices work. And so in a sense, we can't help but make choices that affect what desires will be, right? And um, that means that desires are not givens, but they're in fact in large part outcomes of our decisions. And we can know that's the case. And that means that we can't just pretend that they're the kinds of things that we just have as the outcome of natural drives and they just need to be organized and negotiated with others such that we don't like infringe people's rights or whatever. Like that conception of the way that it works doesn't actually work out upon investigation. And there's kind of a a long dialectic that's happening here between like Catherine McKinnon and Ellen Willis in different phases of like feminist critique going through this. I don't know. Would that be helpful? Do you think to talk? About? I was just going to say, I was literally just going to say, can we just broad strokes set up the debate, you know, the one side and the other side and then where sort of Austin kind of comes down saying, well, actually not to uh, call back to previous episodes. It's both. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think both. And in a way that's synthesis. And not just, uh, yeah, but there's extra stuff too that we're not talking about. That's the bad kind. <laughs> both end, right? The good kind yeah, is yeah. synthesis, right? Uh, how do we make sense of both of these things being true? Um, yeah. That's just called explanation, I think. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, fuck, so like, fuck nuance, except when, yeah. <laughs> except when you have grand uh, Afe Bogen, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Which is all about nuance <laughs> at one level. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so yeah, the Catherine McKinnon critique, she's like the um, sort of infamous feminist philosopher who like, critiqued porn um, and stuff like that. And so her, her basic point was um, that desire is not pre-political, that we should reject this notion that desire is like an innate natural drive that um, we're all just given. Um, 
And so therefore, it's you know, incontestable in a certain way. And to understand that under systems of oppression, like patriarchy being one, um, sex is going to be inherently violent. Um, there's going to be a master-slave sort of relationship in it. Um, and that's just sort of constitutive of what sex is under patriarchy. And so, you know, the critique uh, in really, really broad strokes is like, um, con- like a consent is not going to be enough to make, uh, to like justify um, certain like forms of sex, especially like in porn, because porn itself shapes our desires in strong ways into like reinforcing patriarchy. And so it's very possible that um, someone could enjoy um, sort of being demeaned in a way that's wrong and bad for them, um, but they enjoy it because their desires have been shaped by cultural and political institutions to be that way. And so it has this kind of false consciousness kind of critique um, that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. Um, yeah, this is like said, the real. I, this is like the real strong, like critical theory um, mm-hmm. type of interpretation, right? Yeah, and and I will say, I, I remember hearing Srinivasan on a podcast talking about this originally before I read this paper, and she had said, I remember this very clearly, and I'm, and I'm curious if it will be the same for me if I do this in a class, where she said that she has her students read McKinnon, and she finds that about ninety to ninety five percent of them just think McKinnon's right. Like, no, like just completely right. And she was very surprised by that. Mm. Like she thought there would be this strong, like kind of, you know, classic liberal sense of don't judge people's desires and, um, you know, like just don't yuck people's yums. The people what they have, don't tell people what they should and shouldn't want, whatever, right? But to the contrary, especially talking about sex and the influence of porn on sex, that her students almost you know, universally said that, no, this is just right. Like porn has had this exactly this terrible and detrimental effect on their sex lives. And she was very surprised by that. Um, mm. So that may just be anecdotal, but it is interesting to think that young people who would probably be more on the forefront of these things um, might think that this pretty radical uh, kind of, you know, feminist critique, um, which, you know, probably even, I don't, I don't know what it to say. Most feminists don't sex positive feminists certainly, um, don't think that McKinnon's on point about this, but it's maybe permeated the popular culture, even if it's, you know, ideologically much more subtle than the way that McKinnon's developing it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think that it's a very, um, appealing argument, especially if you're somebody who is critical of just accepting what's presented to you, right? So maybe it's because she's talking to like philosophy students. I don't know what age they would be and how much at that point they've already, like, is it like a freshman class that she's talking about? Or is it like graduate class or is it like, you know, mixture? No, I think it's like freshman. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if that, like, are these people who've already been engaged in kind of critical thinking and, and, like, is her program, is it like an analytic philosophy program or is there like a strong critical theory? Like, I, I wonder, because I feel like if you're somebody who is inclined towards that like post-Lukashian conception of of false consciousness, then I think the, the McKinnon argument is like, yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I get it, you know, like that absolutely makes sense. And it's really easy to like give your intellectual assent to it while you're reading it because you're like fuck i guess yeah that absolutely does there is a logic there that is Mm -hmm. consistent 
and that has a lot of explanatory purchase that does yeah, make a lot of connects with experience really importantly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think maybe that's part of the appeal when reading it. Whereas the critique is much more nuanced. The critique is much more difficult to wrestle with because especially if you're somebody who has like universal structural material concerns, you're going to be like, but well, wait a second here, then you're just fetishizing. You know, you're just fetishizing the individual and the identity of the person and, um, and we can't do that. We need to, we need to have more of a kind of like, um, <clears throat> detailed, fine detailed explanation of things. And, and this just doesn't do it, you know? So I, I think, I think it, it, it kind of gets lost. Um, like the thrust of it can kind of get lost from that, like critical theory perspective, you know? Which critique are you talking about? The, the kind of, um, sex positive feminist critique, mm. um, that, okay, yeah. that would say that, no, actually, that there is something kind of um, valuable, like whether it's inherent or, or not, like there's something valuable about like um, the the capacity of um, uh, or <coughs> excuse me, there's there's something positive to affirm in um, any subject positions desire, right? And that that you can't explain it away as being like mystification or misunderstanding or like that somehow um, you've, you've dis disempowered them, you know? Um, yeah. From that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's certainly, that's certainly true, right? The, the main, the main criticism from like the sex positive um, feminists of the McKinnon position there is um, not merely like, Oh, you're, um, you're like doing this bad thing by accusing women of false consciousness. Although that's part of the tone, right? It's like this much bigger kind of historical um, genealogy pointing out that the, the, the sort of chief function of these sorts of critiques, um, which involve like sex being a thing that men do to women and that women accept or like receive, right? Right. Um, rather than actually engage in, uh, it's like a mutual activity, like mutual reinforcing activity. Um, is to like curtail women's autonomy and power in social areas that don't involve sex, right? Um, it kind of, it's like telling women you need to have this moral superiority um, by not giving in to patriarchal demands on your desires, right? And that just means like removing yourself from the sex, sexual world because <laughs> it's the only way you can do it since all sex is patriarchal sex. Um, in especially like in, you know, contemporary America or whatever. Um, and that's just not, that's basically just like disempowering women in a really important way. Um, the problem though is like, uh, I'm curious how you feel about this. It seems to me like that's kind of at an impasse because as much as I think that, that the sex positive critique there is absolutely correct. It's a genealogy, it's a genealogical critique, which is not the most substantive form of critique, right? Um, genealogy is actually like a fallacy if you have this really kind of narrow view of how like logical fallacies work, right? Which I don't subscribe to. But um, if critiques are, are merely genealogical, then they're not really finished, right? Is kind of the point. Hmm. So there's a sense in which like both sides seem right about something important. Like the, the McKinnon side is correct that desires are not pre-political givens 
that's something true about the way that desire works, right? It's shaped by uh, ideology and given institutions and practices and, and stuff like that. Um, and we're actually able to abstract from those desires and think about them and realize that, that that's the case about them. And that doesn't actually make them go away, <laughs> right? Like realizing that a desire is shaped by by something other than your natural drives doesn't make it go away, right? Which is really important point about how desire works. Whereas like beliefs, sometimes that that can that can change your beliefs, like knowing how they're shaped, right? Hmm. Uh, desires don't only function that way for the most part. Um, maybe sometimes, but not universally. <laughs> and then like the sex positive critique is right that um, the the answer to that or the response to that recognition about how desire is shaped by our ideology and by um, political and social institutions cannot be to just remove yourself from them or to like denounce them as inherently uh, stained or something such that, that we shouldn't engage in them um, or shouldn't give them countenance. Like the desire no longer counts as a reason for, as a good reason for doing something, right? That can't be the response. That's incredibly disempowering and, and destructive, right? So there's, there's an obvious like tension here that is in need of synthesis, right? Mm. And that's how Sarah Boston sets it up. So maybe I'm just giving the way she's setting it up too much credence, but that seems, <laughs> that seems right to me. Yeah, no, I think, <clears throat> but I think this, this binary that's been established is something that, that exists in many different fronts, you know, um, like philosophical, conceptual, political fronts. So it seems very common in, 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 it's formed in different ways or it's, um, it's formulated in different ways, but you know, you see this, you see this a lot with, um, uh, with contemporary debates between like the new, new left, which tend to be more like on the side of affirming individual preference, individual desire, individual identity, um, versus the kind of like, um, self-congratulatory old left, I don't know what you would call it, um, that, that claims to be, um, you know, not as concerned with affirming of the identitarian position, but is much more concerned with like structures and um, with material causes and um, <clears throat> and things like that. And um, and I think at one level, what you can do is you can say that that so just to accept. Let's just accept the framing for a second. And then maybe I'm just going to use these terms just as like a way to get into it. One side, the um, <clears throat> identitarian side, is like accepting of abstractions as though they have some sort of coherence and some some sort of value as such. Whereas the other side is never satisfied with the construction of the abstraction. And some of them on that side would almost be like myriological nihilists almost, right? Um, and then others like where I think even maybe where Cernovasin might fit in would be much more like dialectical <clears throat> to use the jargon in the sense of like somebody like Bertel Ullman where abstraction is is valuable and it's important and it's kind of a tendential way that representational thinking proceeds and um 
But that doesn't mean that you just simply accept and affirm the static snapshot where you are in your process of thought. You also have this larger awareness that, um, that there's work to be done in the process of abstraction, right? And, and when you have like these oppositions, what you have are moments in the dialectical process of abstraction, but that relate to each other internally, right? And they're not like opposed to each other, but they're always already informing one another and speaking to one another and contaminated and, and cross-resonated and things like that. And so I think at least if you set up the problem in that way, you can kind of understand maybe how to get to like the heart of, of the, the difference, you know? And then, and then when you do that, then it allows you to kind of be like, okay, well, maybe we can bridge that divide in that kind of like that dialectical sense that I think Srinivasan offers as well. Do you think? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, cause you're working at a really abstract level here and appropriately. So, um, I mean, I, is what you're saying kind of like, so one way of thinking about how, how tension or contradiction exists is like, I say P and then you say not P, right? And like, there, yeah. there's no attempt, there is no possibility for synthesis, if that's how you conceive of the dialectical tension as just P or not P, right? Yeah. Um, and that would be like a here, though, philosophy of external relations. Yeah. Where, so the, the, the P and the not P, well, they, they have a sort of relation in that P is involved in both of them, but that's not enough. <laughs> exactly. Anything, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Whereas there's, there's an kind of obvious way, maybe not obvious, but there's a, there's a, there's a way in which, um, the kind of McKinnonite and then the, the sex positive, uh, criticism here are working from a certain shared ground in a way that allows for a kind of dialectical synthesis. Which is, I mean, it's the way certain Boston set up the argument to be that way. So <laughs> right, right. there's a sense in which maybe there's there's like some fabrication going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. again, fuck fuck nuance because <laughs> set up your, yeah. your dialectical synthesis and then see it through. Like yeah, dunk exactly. the basketball. You're on a fast break. <laughs> yeah. Which 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 ironically is already kind of tipping her hand at 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 how she would resolve the problem. In the first place, you know what I mean? Like, like her very methodology shows the type of dialectical thinking that would issue just accepting an either an either or position there. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And that's that's clear because the the central problem that she addresses after sort of making an attempt at this um, synthesis, it isn't like. Okay, so which of the original positions is more correct or whatever? Right. <laughs> right. Like the, that, that her central problem is like there's something else which we can get to. Um, so yeah, I mean we've kind of danced around the idea. Like the central synthesis here is that she says at one point that the task for feminism from here, how to synthesize these two positions, the McKinnonite and the sex positive one, is to is to take our free sexual choices as axiomatic, right? But then also bringing in the McKinnonite point that such choices under oppressive social systems are rarely, if ever, free, right? Um, and so it's, it's easy when we treat uh, our desires as axiomatic to just forget that those choices are not free and are not like springing forth from the head of Zeus fully formed or whatever, right? And of course, the central problem then, the real difficult one is... That means, in a sense, what we can take from like the McKinnonite position, what we're synthesizing from that position is that desires are not pre-political, 
they are shaped by institutions and we make our institutions. So in a sense, we shape our desires. And that means we have to be able to think about um, which desires are better to have because our choices end up creating different desires. And that sounds really bad, <laughs> right? Mm. To ask the question, which desires are best? That's the question that the authoritarian moralist asks, right? That's the question that like Elliot Roger kind of asks by saying, no, the desires that the feminists have are bad. The desires that I have for patriarchy are good, right? Um, mm. and, uh, so, and we're rightly worried about anybody who asks the question about second order desires, like what are the desires that we ought to desire? That sounds like, oh my God, you're going to like, you're going to uh, induce me into your cult at this point. Mm. Um, and that's usually what happens. So we're rightly afraid of that. So then what do we do if we if our conclusion from this is like, oh, but actually we kind of have to ask that question. <laughs> yeah. Cause the question is, is who's forming the question in the first place and then who provides the resources by which we can pursue the line of questioning to address that problem. And the reason it can be fearful too, is that there's a, there's a fear towards teleology, which is like the authoritarian tendency. That's like, yeah, so we should question how we desire, but sneakily it's this dogmatic, like, and, uh, the Bible has told us what those desires mean already, or, oh, Hey, look at this over yeah. here. These ideas have already pre been preformed. We just need to, you know, figure out how to realize them in the form of like the possible manifesting or expressing the real, right? And coincidentally, um, the desires that we ought to have are all the ones <laughs> I already have. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So it is it is but a to, very like fraught position to offer when you're like, but wait a second, we've played this game before. Yeah, we've played this game before and it always ends badly. So we, we can't like go back to that again. But of course, the the um, the point is that we can't not do that. Right. Hmm. The the sort of um, sex positive, uh, as much as the sex positive critique of McKinnon is is very much right about the risks of that, it also has its own risks, which are like um, it, it influences us not to critique institutional forms of oppression and how they shape our desires. Uh, it cover it can like cover for all sorts of terrible transphobia and racism and misogyny and every other every other oppressive system out there. Um, in the, in like the guise of protecting personal preference. But of course, like, um, my, my teacher, Talia Betcher used to say like, uh, you know, what's uh, a gender expression? Patriarchy. <laughs> like mm. the dude who says, I want to be a patriarchal master. That's a gender expression and it's a bad one. <laughs> right. So we have to mm. be able to say that some gender expressions are not good. Uh, even though it's, it's, very understandable when someone says like, no, all gender expressions are equally valid or whatever. Like the, their point is, is valid. And they're saying like, we shouldn't um, critique people for having deviant gender, merely for having deviant gender expressions. Like that's certainly true. Right. Um, but some gender expressions are bad, namely like the patriarchal and oppressive ones, which are gender expressions. Like that's, they're not merely that, but they are that. Yeah. Um, so if, if we're going to say that we need to have a, a way of talking about um, why those things are bad and the other ones are not bad. And, uh, what's, what's a way that we can actually talk about gender expressions and, and anything else really desires in general as being good or bad without falling into this trap of authoritarian moralism. Hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I was, I can't remember the exact line. Um, 
but I was struck by, um, I'll see if I can find it real quick. It's like the, at the last of, it's towards the bottom of the article. And um, she basically talks about this idea of, uh, oh yeah, here it is. <clears throat> so she says, um, she says, the question posed by radical self-love movements is not whether there is a right to sex, there isn't, but whether there is a duty to transfigure, as best we can, our desires. And then she says, to take this question seriously requires that we recognize that the very idea of fixed sexual preference is political, not metaphysical. And then as a matter of good politics, we treat the preferences of others as sacred. We're rightly wary of speaking of what people really want, or what some idealized version of them would want. That way we know authoritarianism lies. This is true most of all in sex, where invocations of real or ideal desires have long been used to cover for the rape of women and gay men. But the fact is that our sexual preferences can and do alter, sometimes under the operation of our own wills, not automatically, but not impossibly either. And, and then she was like, what's more, sexual desire does not always neatly conform to our own sense of it, as generations of gay men and women can attest. The desire can take us by surprise, leading us somewhere we hadn't imagined we would ever go, or towards someone we never thought we would lust after or love. In the very best cases, the cases that perhaps ground our best hope, desire can cut against what politics has chosen for us and choose for itself. <clears throat> and this is interesting. So desire choosing for itself, immediately my Nietzsche and Deleuze, Deleuze, Guattari bells start going off, especially when she starts talking about like the idea of transfiguring, because I'm immediately thinking of this idea of like a transvaluation of values, right? And so that was... I don't know if she would be comfortable with me like lumping her into to that kind of domain, but that's where my mind goes because that's just kind of where most of my my thought has kind of resided coming out of that, you know, um, kind of like French continental school. Um, and uh, I thought there's something really interesting in that. And I keep thinking I keep thinking of and this is a I'm just acknowledging right now. This is a bad, a bad model that I'm going to offer, but I think there's value in the bad model just as like a simple, easy heuristic. So like I keep thinking of desire functioning, you know, you've got like the Lacanian and psychoanalytic school where desire is fundamental lack. And then you've got um, this like Deleuze, Deleuze, Guattari, post DG idea of, um, or like even in like Lyotard and Baudrillard where like <clears throat> desire operates differently, right? It isn't, um, it isn't an expression of a lack, but rather is a sort of like positive creative force, for lack of a better term. Um, and it operates through this like undif indif indifferentiation, undifferentiation of flows, right? But that at least in anti-Oedipist, Liz and Guattari talk about there's a difference between like desire as um, like desiring machine, they might call it, um, or desiring production. And, um, and then like social formation that, that, that like takes desire and like wraps a form around it, you know, and it, it codifies it. And I keep thinking of like a tube, you know, like desire is like the water that would just, if it weren't wrapped in a tube, it would just fucking flow, you know, like just water, like just think of a sea that's just bouncing around and undulating and ups and downs and the top from the bottom are all kind of like, you can't really tell the difference. And 
you know, like waves are moving through, which is just this like diffusion of energy. And, you know, there's like points of compressed energy, which is like a wave. And then there's points of like, kind of like, like less energy where there's, I don't know, more maybe like still water or whatever. Like, I, I don't really know exactly how to formulate it because I'm not an oceanographer. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think the idea makes sense that there's like water that that isn't like, like it's not just going in a particular direction. It's kind of like just kind of like uh, it, uh, it, it's not differentiated, right? And then it's not bounded, we might say, except when you get to the shore and then it becomes bounded and it starts to take a different shape. And then you get the repetitive patterns of a wave, for example, or tides um, and things like that. But that's because of the relations that this previously non-differentiated activity or or flows um, kind of comes up against or, or attaches to. And then I'm thinking like, but if you take that water and you create pipes and then you funnel that water through the pipe, you're not, you're not like eliminating the flow of water. There's still a sense in which that, that non-differentiated, um, I, I hesitate to say essence, but I'm trying to think of the right, the right terminology here, but that without just using like Deleuze Guattari jargon, which is like, you know, um, like flows and, 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 and like, like lines of flight or whatever, things like that. So, but there's something about like the water in the tube is still, it still retains, if you will, some of the characteristics that were exhibited in the open sea, but now they've been compressed in certain aspects of that, that undifferentiation or indifferentiation, whatever the fucking word is, um, that they've been transformed because of these, this new sets of connections where, um, you know, as they're being sucked into the pipe, you know, they kind of like get drawn together and, and then they start to take a particular shape and the shape is round because the pipe is round. Whereas if the pipe was square, it would take a square shape. Or if it was like a fucking figure eight shape, it would take a figure eight shape. You know what I mean? And so like, there's a sense in which like, Encultured desire gives it the shape, but that there's still something of desire's capacity to not be always already coded or overcoded by that form. And I keep thinking that in in those terms, and and that's not necessarily the best way of thinking about it. But does that help at all? Does that make sense at all to you to see kind of what I'm trying to think think of? Yes, yeah, so let, let me let me see if I can bring that down to earth a bit, and and maybe you can tell me if I'm on the right track with what you're thinking. So, like, there seems to be two problems with the authoritarian moralist who 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 sees that we can shape desires with our institutions and our practices, and then tries to make our institutions and practices in a certain way, such that they'll deliver the best desires. Right? Um, they're not wrong that that's that that can happen. But they're they're wrong on like two other fronts. The obvious one is like there isn't a single set of desires that are best, right? Um, that's like what the teleologist that you mentioned earlier is doing. Like there's a single purpose that all human beings have, and we gotta match that purpose as best we can. That involves a certain set of desires, and so you should have those. And if you don't have those, you're bad, right? That's <laughs> yeah. That's just wrong. Like a certain degree of pluralism is obviously true, um, but even more than that, there's a sense in which. Uh, even even though it's true that our desires are shaped by institutions and practices, it's just too anarchic for that. Like you you can't you could shape the tube, but the content that the tube is delivering, the water, is too anarchic to be fully shaped by the tube. 
Like it's going to just erode mm. it and it's going to come out in weird forms you can't predict. It's just not deterministic yeah. in that way. Leaks. Yeah, it's going to spring leaks. And yeah. it's, yeah, yeah. And it's going to warp the tube when there's a buildup. And yeah, yeah, I love this. Keep but, going. But yeah. in such a way that you, it's not like you can just patch it up and, and fix it and get better over time. Like you just can't. Desire just doesn't work that way. Like even if we build our institutions, even if we were to have full Catholic integralism or whatever, like shape all of our desires to be, you know, um, perfectly divine or whatever, it just wouldn't work. And not because of like human finitude or because of the weaknesses of our institutions. Like it just, the nature of desire is such that it won't happen. It's desires too anarchic. Um, it will sort of deviate and surprise us and do things we didn't expect. Um, and like, we just have to get comfortable or at least okay with the fact that desire is transformative in that way. Um, mm. And we, we can't predict how it's going to work for us and it's going to surprise us and we're going to desire things we never thought we would and stop desiring things we never thought we would. Um, and that's just part of the human experience. It's part of how desire works. And like, we have to be able to hold both of those, that tension in mind at the same time, that there's a sense in which um, desires are shaped by institutions and practices. And so we have to make those institutions or practices in such a way that acknowledges that fact. But also we can't direct it towards like a single goal or even like direct it too much towards defined goals at all because that just won't happen that way. Um, and that's like a really difficult tension to keep in mind, even just not even at the social level, at the individual level. That's like impossible yeah. to keep in mind. It seems impossible to keep in mind because it means like you make choices um, for your life, knowing that your desires are going to be different based upon those choices, but having no idea <laughs> yeah. how they're going to be different. Right. So like, there's, have you, have you heard of um, that famous paper that Laurie Paul wrote called transformative experiences? No, it's an analytic philosophy paper, so it's probably not something you would have come across, but it's fantastic. I actually love to read it sometime with you because I think it's, it's a great paper. But the basic thesis is like there are certain experiences that transform our desires in such a way that um, rational decision-making procedures just don't work for them. So like principally having a kid, right? How do you make a rational choice about whether you should have a kid knowing that your desires will be completely changed by having a kid? Right. But you don't mm. know necessarily how. I mean, you have some idea about how. Right. But that just means like you can't really make that decision in the, in the, in the way we, we conceive of rationality <coughs> in like the classical sense of like, you know, weighing desires and, um, and beliefs and likelihood of fulfillment and all that kind of stuff. Right. You can't do that with these transformative experiences. And so there's kind of like a writ small and a writ large version of that. Right. Where we're talking about how to shape institutions. Um, but that applies just as much to our individual decisions. So this like goes all the way down to the most concrete level about how we make our own big decisions in life. And there's a certain openness you have to have, um, about that. And that's, especially if you're like, I don't know, someone like me who always wants to have really clear and sufficient reasons for doing anything. That's not a comfortable position to be in, but it's like <laughs> one you have to be in. Yeah, whereas I, I find myself much more comfortable in that space. Like, even even talking at the outset, like, my talking to think is kind of an expression of desiring production. You know, it's it's that I'm I'm always kind of engaging in this experimental activity of, of self-discovery and discovery of concepts and 
um, discovery of places to land and things to attach myself to. And, and I do that by doing them or giving myself to them in a lot of ways. And, um, it's weird. I, I, I was close with somebody once who, um, they told me that they thought like it was, it was someone I was dating and, and, and they were like, um, God, what did they say? They were like, uh, they were asking me like my ideal date. Right. And they, they were really fixed on like me, like ranking things and like having like a clear set of like, like, this is, this is the things that I like. And, <laughs> and the, the, the good Marxist in me was like, well, that, I think that's just kind of like, um, you're exchanging self-knowledge for consumer preference, which was kind of, um, you know, but then trying to communicate that being like, well, I just, because that, that does, that does, that is a, a, contrib a contributing factor to my like rational, my rational like thought process. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's more than that too. It's also like, I don't always know. Like I could tell you right now, like for me, like, like right now, if someone was like, what's, what's your idea of like a perfect night out or something like that? It usually has something to do with being, um, like going to a live performance, right? Like, like a theater performance or, um, going to like an art gallery, like a pop-up art gallery or something like that. But, but even that, I'm, I don't necessarily know what like an ideal, like I don't, I don't have like a, oh, like if I, you know, let's like, let's pack a picnic basket and, you know, we get in a fucking helicopter and like, I'm talking about ideal, 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 right? Like fucking bachelor <laughs> shit. Get in a helicopter over fucking Lake Como in Italy and you find like this, this beautiful spot. Like, like, yeah, like those things are beautiful. Those, that's great. Like, yeah, I can totally vibe with that. But is that like the ideal? Like, how do you know that's the ideal? I don't fucking know. Let's do it and see, you know, like, let's mm. just do it. And let's not be so <laughs> caught up in like preforming. Like, let's just go. You want to go? Let's fucking go. <laughs> that's like, that's more like my attitude to things. Like, cool. Give me a suggestion and let's figure it out. And, and then in the process, we'll be like, oh, cool. That was great. And then even along the way, it doesn't mean you're totally incapacitated at the whims of this this other force, because along the way you attach your attention and you attach your energy to things in the process of the experiment of the activity. And at least that's how I tend to do things, right? Like my partner and I just a couple of weeks ago, they have this, um, <clears throat> they have this big light show that they do here in Sydney every year. They hadn't done it for the last, I don't know if it was the last two years or just the last year, but I think the last two years they hadn't done it, but it's called Vivid Sydney. And, and it's all this like light art. And they have like these local artists from around Australia that, have all of these different installations that they have set up and, and, um, they have different, um, like, uh, it's like a long, uh, a long walk along the waterfront, you know, that you can go. And sometimes they have these parks, like the botanic gardens that they light up. They didn't do it this year, but, but, um, like you kind of just go and, and you kind of just give yourself to the whims of the exhibition. And we were fucking, we hadn't been out that much lately because, you know, uh, we've got our, our sick dog that uh, requires a lot of attention at the moment. And, um, we haven't been out too much. And, uh, so we went out and we we're like, this is going to be like a night. And it was part of like our anniversary too. So we went out and we're like, let's go fucking do vivid as part of our anniversary celebration. Cause we both enjoy it. And like, not only were our feet fucking exhausted afterwards, it was kind of painful, but it was also windy. So like a couple of the exhibitions weren't even up and, um, but you just kind of walk and you're like, oh, do you want to go there? And do you want to go here? And do you want to go here? And as weirdly, as much as we complained about our feet hurting, like I still look back on that night quite fondly as like, I had my idealized expectation of what the night was going to be. Then I had my disappointments, but then there was also a sense in which we just kept kind of going. 
And even though both of us were in pain, we were like, we were on this trail that was like the, the, the walk of light or whatever the fuck it was called. And we were like, well, let's just keep seeing. And as we allowed ourselves to be open to the presentations, we encountered different things, you know? And it's the sort of thing where you can choose because you're walking through it. And we were kind of even at one point like, okay, let's get, let's get a fucking Uber and get back home or whatever. And we got to the end from where we started. You could have started at any different point. And then we got to this point where we we're like, oh shit, if only we would have started here before our feet were tired and before we we're all fucking tired. Cause there's a lot of really cool stuff at this end point that if that was the beginning point, we could have spent all this time like exploring it. But it kind of was like a payoff, even though we were tired and our feet were in pain and, and whatever. So there was like this, like kind of from my perspective, now you'd have to ask her how she interprets it. She might've interpreted it in a different way and that's fine. Right. But from my perspective, it was kind of like a, I didn't really know what to expect, even though I had an idea. And we kind of just gave ourselves to the whims of the possibilities that were there. And then we actively engaged with our own agency with those whims that were kind of like guiding us, you know, kind of like the tubes that were guiding us, but we didn't lose our sense of potency. So there was something, something kind of creative and experimental in it. And I kind of just go through my whole life that way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that definitely vibes with my sense of, of how you go through life. <laughs> Um, which is great and it's kind of beautiful. Um, at the same time, like that, that anarchic sort of creative play, right? At the social level, um, that's sort of a little bit more in line with like the sex positive um, vision, right? And mm. what that risks at the social level is that it, it kind of obscures the fact that um, our desires are obviously ideologically and institutionally shaped in important ways. And that has real effects, um, inegalitarian effects for individuals. And that's like the the one piece of the synthesis that comes from like the Elliot Roger, like the incel um, complaint, right? Like the one part of that that's true is that, well, obviously no one is entitled to sex from anybody else, right? Um, that part of it's clearly wrong and um, and like a feature of, of like patriarchal oppression and whatnot. Um, like, so, so certain Boston mentions like the sandwich analogy, which I can't remember who, who came up with that. Um, do you remember that part where it's like, think about yeah, sexual yeah. entitlement. Like, uh, if, if anyone's, um, like not sharing their sandwich with you, like that's not oppression. Like you're not oppressed because you ask for someone's sandwich and they won't share it with you. Right. I'm like, that's, that's obviously true in one sense, but also I love the way she like extends the analogy. She's like, if everybody else in the room is sharing their sandwiches with each other and not with you, and the only reason they're not doing it with you is because of like something about your identity that you were just like born with or can't change, you would feel different about the sandwich sharing thing, <laughs> right? Um, mm. uh, that's maybe not quite oppression, but it's like it's much closer to oppression than it was in the original analogy where it's just like you walk up to somebody and ask for their sandwich, half their sandwich, and they say no. Um, that's more complicated than that. And... Uh, that's a question we actually have to address. Um, is, isn't, isn't there something also in this though? I've read that and I kind of, and I didn't know where to take it, but there's also something about like the designation of the item that is being shared as a property that already gets us into the language of like ownership and rights, which already is a kind of like liberal framing of like the abstraction away from the thing. But and I don't, the thing I don't think becomes, it is because it's a sandwich. 
That's why it's important that it's a sandwich, yeah, but, right? It's not like a toy. But but you can do what you want with it because it's yours. And so you can engage in the act of sharing within an economy that privileges and allows for this type of sharing under these contractual conditions. Oh yeah, that that's I think that's part of Sherman Austin's complaint is that it's 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 putting it in the form of a marketplace, which is part of the problem. Right? Yeah. Where and, clearly and, if and everyone's so sharing of, your sandwich, if everyone's in the room is sharing your sandwiches with each other, it's no longer a marketplace. Like property isn't a concept that's having a lot of purchase there. Like no pun intended, right? Yeah. Because everyone's sharing it. Yeah, but and and so much of like liberal political discussions though does frame like bodily autonomy and um, like mm. sexual consent in the context of like liberal rights, you know? Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah. Well, that's why yeah, I love yeah. that she took that to the the Charles Fourier thing, uh, the yeah. French yeah, utopian yeah, yeah. socialist. I was curious what you thought about that. So uh, Fourier argued that um, there basically needed to be a a small subset of people who were the amorous nobility who would basically their service to society and to the public would be to give sex to whoever didn't get it otherwise, whoever wanted it to have like to accomplish this guaranteed sexual minimum. And that only this would allow romantic relationships to be truly free because it wouldn't be based upon exchange of rights to sex <laughs> or whatever. Um, yeah. That's crazy. And that needs to be like an HBO drama. Yeah. 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 It is. It is crazy. <laughs> oh, shit. Fucking and aristocrats, man. Yeah. And it's great no. that the, the amorous, it's a nobility. Like it's not prostitutes, like in the sense that they're, uh, that it's conceived in, in contemporary like Western culture. Like, no, this is like, these are the nobility. Like we all respect them highly for taking on. They're like they're like platonic guardians, but for sex. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> How has there not been a TV show or a movie based off of this? Is there one? There might actually be. I don't know, but there yeah. has to be something that's been inspired by that. Because that's like too. It's too ripe for the picking. You know. Yes, Jesus. super yeah. sexy drama with all sorts of politics involved. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh man. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're kind of going long here, so we should probably wrap it up. Um, I think there's so much more that we could say and so many more areas to explore. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an interesting article. We'll put a link to it down below. It's in the London review of books. Um, as Troy said too, it's based off of a, a larger book that's just called The Right to Sex. Um, and so you can check that out. And uh, but yeah, do you have any any final thoughts that you wanna that you wanna put out there that you want us to kind of like linger on as we as we go away? No, I think that's that's good. And I think you were right to cap it off with the talk about transvaluation. Um, or transfiguration, I think is the word that she uses, right? But it's kind of yeah. transvaluation, and then it's like taking in an abstract perspective on our desires and thinking about how to transfigure them. And that that's not, that's not an obvious um, sort of activity to engage in. It's not like the utopia, like the uh, authoritarian moralist or the Catholic integralist or whatever. It's not like that. It's much more complicated and pluralistic and open-ended. Um, and that's not neat and tidy, but you know, that's politics. It's not neat and tidy. 
and and I I I would say that she speaks of it as not being metaphysical. Oh wait, does she say that it's not? Hold on, let me read it. Does she say it's not metaphysical or that it is metaphysical? Hold on, I can't remember real quick. Uh, what does she say? It's not metaphysical. She says, okay, to take this question seriously requires that we recognize that the very idea of fixed sexual preference is political, not metaphysical. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. I guess what I, the reason I was wondering is because um, <clears throat> for me here, I think I think when you start thinking in these terms, you're, you're precisely engaging at the metaphysical level, which has a, has a sort of inherent potency, uh, almost like a like a necessary revolutionary potency contra the liberal rights discourse mm. that we typically engage in. Because she talks about how like, almost like desire is this independent variable. And once you start speaking in those terms, desire takes on a capacity. It, it, it takes on, I don't want to say a form, because it's almost as though she's saying that it's formless. And it does become a, a kind of metaphysical principle that that carries with it a certain kind of potency. And it, it's a potency that is, is always necessarily like resistant, that will always depose the tendency towards political formation. And, and I think people find that type of thinking, and I, and maybe I'm, <clears throat> I'm overstating this and she wouldn't go this far, but I do wonder if some people would find that as being like, essentializing or like, like fetishizing chaos, you know, or fetishizing like the contingent or something along those lines. And, and so I do know that some people might, might find that to be a little bit troublesome one, because they don't know what to do with it at a political and social level. Um, and that also at like a philosophical level, they might find it to, to like fit within certain camps that they also would want to resist. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess, First of all, I think when she's saying political, not metaphysical, I, I'm not 100% sure what she means by that, but I'm guessing it means something like contestable, not eternally necessary. Like narrowing okay. metaphysical to mean something like of the nature of things that's unchangeable, which it's something mm -hmm. you just deny is what metaphysics consists in entirely. Like, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that seems to me just a terminological difference there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess the point is just like that's that's what desire is, right? It's it's the kind of thing that's not that is always contestable, changeable, um, fairly anarchic, but not completely chaotic, uh, and that so is politics. Then, because politics, in part, is about um, like figuring out how we live together with all of the desires that we have. Uh, so. Um, yeah, if, if like, if you want a picture of politics where it's like, here is the perfect society, now implement it, like that's not going to work. Like that's that's going to end up authoritarian. Um, or even it, you could like fully deflate it into a form of liberalism where like politics is just uh, maximizing the total set of, you know, preference satisfaction in this society or whatever. But that's also not going to work. Um, so... Yeah, it's a, the authoritarian impulse, even if it comes through like it's deflationary liberal form, isn't going to work because politics is fairly agonistic in that way. And that's something we got to be OK with. So just the last thing I'll say, and I know that you and I have talked about reading him, um, doing a book club on him. But so Kojin Karatani in his collection of essays um, 
<clears throat> on um, the architecture, architecture as metaphor is the title of the collection. He has this conception of what he calls the will to architecture. And he essentially argues that like Western, the Western metaphysical tradition operates precisely by whether it's in the liberal form or whether it's in the more authoritarian form, it operates precisely through the activity of like the cessation of difference or the cessation of becoming um, through codification or formalism is what he uh, discusses in that text in particular. And so I think there's something kind of like um, inherently stifling, like in Deleuze Guattari's sense, they might call it like microfascism, even, you know, that there's a sense in which this tendency towards like the restriction of the flows of desire to engage in the activity of transfiguration is an activity of like microfascism. Um, and I think there's something interesting to really think about there. Uh, Foucault talks about this when he talks about like, what is the value of anti-Oedipus? He says that it's a book of ethics. And the reason it's a book of ethics is because it's essentially asking like, in what ways are, are you fascist? You know, like <laughs> in what ways are we all fascist? And this book gives us a sort of like diagnostic set of tools to allow us to, to turn the mirror on, on, on ourselves and on society. And um, I think there's something interesting in that. <clears throat> so. Huh. I didn't know that about uh, Foucault writing my anti-Oedipus. That's, that's a nice one. Yeah. 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 He sees it as a book of ethics and I fully agree. And I love that. I think that's a really useful way to kind of get in. I mean, obviously once you do you, there's much more there, but, but I think that's really a really helpful like guidebook or, or, or signpost maybe I'll say. Yeah. Yeah, man. Ethics is first philosophy. Shot it from the rooftops. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, well, let's go ahead and, uh, wrap up that and then let's talk about something that's like bringing us joy now man um this is the final segment of our podcast episode where we like to talk about something that's giving us meaning in a potentially bleak and dark and meaningless universe it is time for the sticky leaves so troy it is your turn what is uh holding you up and giving you joy in a world of despair and idle chatter and <laughs> endless polemics and anger and resentment and frustration yada 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 yeah, so I watched this documentary last week called The Heavy Metal Gangs of Wadi. Do you know the town of Wadi in northern Australia? No. Yeah, so it's pretty far from Sydney, I gather, but it's somewhere in like central northern Australia, I believe. And it's a um like a aboriginal uh tribes um have that land in Wadi. Um How do you spell it? Do you know? Yeah, W A D I Y E. Like wad I, wad I, and apparently there's been a kind of a a history since um, I believe like the 90s of these different tribes in wad I associating themselves with different um, musical groups, but especially heavy metal groups. So like there's a Metallica one and a Slayer one and a Judas Priest one and and many others, and. Um, they have lots of kind of like violent skirmishes between each other. And there's this kind of sense in a lot of the news reports, I guess the original reports of when some violence broke out in like the nineties was that, Oh, well, obviously like these people got a hold of heavy metal and that like inflames their desires for violence. And then they like attack each other and look at this is just more evidence of like, you know, violent media, <coughs> Uh, fomenting mm. um, violent desires in these like backwards, you know, savage people, and they have no outlet mm. for that, so they just you know kill each other with um, 
um, with like swords and spears and machetes and shit like that. And really kind of racist stuff. Um, and so this documentary crew goes down there and they're interviewing the people and talking to them, seeing how their communities actually work. And what's really beautiful about it is they find that um, there have been violent skirmishes almost entirely always caused by alcohol, <laughs> consumption of alcohol. Mm. And that they, mm-hmm. the t- they banned alcohol and then the violence basically stopped. Um, but that more importantly, um, the music actually is what brings them together and uh, sort of erases and subdues any like violent skirmishes between them. Like it creates community between them. And so that they, they have this weekly or bi-weekly, I can't remember how often it is, hmm. meeting where they all go to like this house where there's a DJ and they play the various songs from the bands that um, their, their tribes are associated with. And they do these kind of, kind of ritualistic tribal dances that's not like headbanging or anything like that. Uh, although it's, it's noticeably kind of metal. Um, and they do these dances and then like they do it to each other's bands and like the, they come together and hmm. they have this kind of community formation. And there's actually the women are involved too. And like there's a Madonna group. They play Madonna and they really get dancing because it's like the 80s synth bomb stuff. Um, <laughs> and so these, the documentary crew kind of finds out that um, the, the musical associations they have is actually the thing holding them together in the end, not mm. the thing fomenting any strife between the different tribes. And so I thought that the, the documentary was was really beautiful and it was a great example um for me of how music can be this incredible cohesive community forming thing um which is something Mm. i love so much about music and shout out to our our good friend diana who's done um academic work on this stuff and that especially aggressive music um in the communities where it's it's foundational um actually has the effect of sort of through um, identity formation, through sympathy, through all these other kind of positive mechanisms, actually doesn't foment violent tendencies in people, but actually um, helps them regulate emotions in an important Hmm. kind of autonomy expressing way. And so uh, effective regulation is like the term, I guess, psychologists use for it. And so kids who like metal and hardcore and stuff like that, like listening to music helps them gain a sense of autonomy over their emotions and helps them express those things in a safe way and Mm. importantly builds community in this way. And so I thought it was a really nice example um, of how that works in practice and and sort of, you know, exposes these really uh, these really just kind of superficial criticisms of you know, listening yeah. to hip hop or metal and makes you want to go and, you know, shoot people up and do drugs and get bitches and stuff like that. It's just um, obviously not a very good uh, understanding of the psychology of music. Um, so, yeah, if you're interested, it's called Heavy Metal Gangs of Wadai. Uh, it's um, it was done by Noisy, um, which is like a, a kind of music sort of channel or collective or whatever um they have a series called music mm. world and this was one of them so it's free where, where did you see this oh online yeah it's free <laughs> online uh i can't remember where i saw it but it was recommended to me dude that sounds that sounds fucking amazing first of all Wadai is really far so it's up in the northern <laughs> territory like like really fucking far um but yeah that sounds fucking cool man i um i would totally dig that i i keep thinking like 
so music was maybe my no theater was always my first love um that's why but it was music theater you know like when it when i when it first started but um you know obviously i was in bands growing up and or a band for a really long time and then um did some other stuff too and then i've been involved with music stuff but like now it's been much more on the um acting directing producing side of of things both in theater tv film whatever but i tend to think of it in terms of like a musicality and uh i'm, I'm reading that book still by peter brook that i talked about last week mm -hmm. and um the theater one he kind of talks what's up the theater one yeah, the theater, yeah, the empty space one. Yeah. And um, and he's really inspired by the work of, um, I don't I never had to say the guy's name, Antonin Artaud, Artaud, it looks like Artaud, A-R-T-A-U-D. Um, and, and the idea of like what's called the theater of, the, uh, theater of cruelty. And when you're talking about like this music as, what did you call it? Affective resignation? Regulation. Regulation, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say I don't, I didn't quite understand. Yeah, affective regulation. That's really interesting because um, it reminds me a lot of like what what theater of cruelty tries to like get at, and um, it isn't just simply like trying to shock for shock's sake, but there's a sense in which it's it's trying to engage at the level of affect, right, mm -hmm. and to to not just presume the gestures and the tone and the cadence of speech that you typically get in theater and film and television and in acting schools, you know? Um, like I've recently started, I've gone through teacher training and I'm, and I'm teaching at um, Anthony Mindel's uh, acting school. I, I teach in the Sydney school. Um, <clears throat> and um, one of the things that I've been, I've been really impressed upon just in all my years of like different types of, of, of acting training is is how to like not just reproduce the same kind of mimetic stuff. And there's something in at least like what you were talking about that makes me think that 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 there's like a a, a way of creating formation through like affective disruption, you know? Hmm. And it's it's a, it's a disruption of the everyday flows. Like we were talking about in the in the shitty minute that like that like that like polemic that induces you to think according to a certain speed or tempo, um, to use words in a certain way, to formulate your phrasing, to formulate to formulate your thought patterns under certain conditions, to serve certain ends, um, to address certain audiences, to respond to certain uh, trends, and and when you can engage in that level of like disruption of of cruelty. <clears throat> then it actually allows for desire to kind of create different um, different formations, you know, to be regulated in different ways. And um, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I love that. It makes me want to watch the documentary like right now, but I can't because I got to do work. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that actually kind of goes back to stuff we're talking about at the end of the main segment too and talking about the disruption yeah. that happens with desire formation and that. Um, that's a big function of art in society is that it's, it's a really good way for discovering surprising things about ourselves and what we desire. <laughs> um, yeah. especially when we do art in communities with people. Um, and that's, that disruptive experience is is really good and it's super important. Um, and to do it in, in the community is also like a, where people value each other and care about each other's makes that the scariness of it, um, less debilitating 
right? And we can become more open to how we'll change in that process. And that's just, those are the most beautiful moments that we have, right? When we undergo those transformations in an environment where we're safe and valued and supported, um, and then come out the other side somewhat different, like all of, you know, the greatest aesthetic experiences I've ever had were just like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It'd be fun to talk to Macon Holt about this, actually, since like oh, his yeah. research is so much on yeah, like the effects of of like sonic resonance and stuff like that. If people don't know, we did an episode with with Macon Holt. He's a philosopher. Is that like how he would classify himself? But yeah, theorist of like music and philosophy and um and like uh, the power of sonic creation. You might say. Um, I don't know what episode number it was, but if you kind of Google it. Um, we talked a lot about like music and stuff based on his book. Um, but yeah, he'd be, he'd be somebody that would probably, um, have some interesting thoughts on, on that doco as well. Oh yeah, for sure. Cool. Yeah. The, Sick. People want to check out his book. It's called pop music and hip on Yeah. And I think it just came out in paperback, which means it's slightly more affordable, which is always a, always a yeah. good thing for academic books when they get that paperback run. Um, well, sick. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Um, thanks, man. That was really fun to talk about that. Um, yeah, that yeah. was cool. And it's so funny, too, because it's like the perfect way to like my like my like abstract, like I'm trying to fucking think about how to work through Deleuze Guattari by thinking about like oceans and water and piping. And then you're like, well, hold on a second here. Let me bring it back down to earth. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I love, I love when, I love when we, when we do that. <laughs> it's our little dialectical, yeah, process. I love do. it. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. Uh, which is why I also enjoy the fact that you are uh, encouraging me to read all of these like analytic philosophy essays. Although I'm not sure it would, Cernavasan, would she be like in the analytic school? Like, I don't even know if she's like codified in that sense. Very broadly. Okay. Yeah, very yeah. broadly. Well, cool. Um, yeah, you can hit us up on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. You can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. As I said before, too, if you can throw some pennies at us, that would be great. Uh, Patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Um, we've got like backlog of bonus content and stuff like that. We also do um, patron sponsored episodes where we allow our patrons to choose what topics we are going to be talking about and uh, we'll probably put a call out for that here in the coming week or two as well um but yeah for now i think that's that's pretty much everything unless there's anything i forgot to say troy uh just one more thing i can think of dude what's that das the damia maritonski 